Hello? Eric. Hey, Christian. Nice to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. Hi, this is Joe. Hey, Joe. Nice to meet you. Eric, you and I have never met, but you sound unflappable. <laughs> you, you, have a, you have an unflappable voice. Uh, I, I probably, I probably, the more nervous I am, probably the more unflappable I sound. So, <laughs> Eric, if you are nervous, it is a clear sign that you have never listened to a single episode of this show. <laughs> I have to confess that is true. I, I looked at the website and there was a lot of interesting stuff, but I will confess that I did not. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's, not, I, that's okay. I, You're coming listen. to it fresh. Yeah. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, we come to it almost as fresh. Um, so, uh, I met, I, Eric, we met, I think at a, like a, one of these junior senior scholar things uh, years yeah. ago. Um, uh -huh. And yeah. I was really excited when I came across this paper that we're going to talk about for reasons that we'll get into. I think it's super important and really interesting. Um, but it was also like delightful to see your, to see your name again and, and read some of your scholarship. Like you're one of those, you know, there are a handful of people out there who over the kind of the course of my career have um, kind of said the right thing at the right time. You know what I mean? And I, I think as, as scholars, we sometimes, you know, lose sight of how the things that we say and our feedback can influence others in their work. And, you know, I, I tend to write kind of, I don't know if they're exactly oddball things, but, you know, I don't necessarily have a genre where it's like always clear about what the nature of my contribution is. And so, you know, there was a particular conference where there was a lot of skepticism about what I'd written. And Eric was one of the few voices saying, hey, I think this is really good. And that it stuck with me. And that's it's it, Eric's fault. <laughs> it's all it Eric's fault. Well, Christian stuff, I remember it was highly theoretical property piece. And my memory is so bad that I don't remember the details. But, there, you know, there's a lot of highly theoretical stuff written in legal academia, as you both know, and as most mm -hmm. listeners, I think, will also appreciate. Uh, and a lot of overhype. And Christian's was just the reverse. I thought you were very modest. I remember thinking, I think, wow, this is actually something really new. <laughs> I also remember, Christian, that um, it placed pretty well, but it was sort of heartbreaking and that it almost placed in like Yale or something, which is where yeah, it really belonged, where, where it belonged, I thought. And I thought, damn, the system almost worked, but it, but it, uh, it, it didn't. So, well, we um, actually have had, we had the EIC that year on our show, who is now a law professor and, um, and he really liked it, but it was like, basically I lost out on, by one vote at Yale oh, on, on you, two, you, two rounds. Um, cause they, you wish you had not known that vote. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason, the, reason it, it, the reason I know it is because the people who liked it, like they, you know, there was like, I revised it to try to attract an additional vote well to vote. answer some some actually legitimate criticism made the paper better uh -huh. but but i still lost by one vote yeah. <laughs> this and, is you know, all very good evidence by the way that that placement bears no relationship to quality of the piece in my in, that's not, my belief i'm not sure which way that cuts in, in the <laughs> well, of, my of course piece. it can cut both ways uh, <laughs> right. like the best knives do right. um you could be saying that the legal <laughs> academia uh, literature almost made a terrible mistake <laughs> <laughs> no i'm saying i'm saying uh, and it's and it's true here too right um, um, uh, with, with Eric's piece, which I agree with you is 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 quite amazing. Um, is you know you need to if if you want to know whether something's amazing, you need to read the damn thing. Yeah, that's right. True. And, yeah. and and make your own judgments and and ask your own questions and and reflect on your own and then engage in conversation with others and, and really come up with your own assessment. Right. The the notion that we would that we would uh, delegate that in effect. Um, to any bright group of students, uh, however bright, uh, is uh, to me a slightly lunatic. Well, I, I, yes. I, well, I, you know, so I don't think any any with this piece, and we don't need to belabor it. But like, I don't. I'm not saying anybody made any mistakes because, like, it's it's hard to know, and especially with 
legal literature um, what the value of a thing is. And and so I don't make any claims like that, that what I wrote was better than the other stuff that they published. I mean, it's like I, I can read something today and think it's really, really great because it, it kind of hits the ideas I have in just the right way. You know, this is, it's not like mathematics or science. There's something true, you know, uh, well, it, it's a discourse. Help. But even in mathematics and science, I think they have some of the same problems. I, my daughter's applying to graduate school in economics, and I was talking to an econ professor here who's uh, been assisting her. And, and the econ journals, they don't have student editors, but they have some of the same problems. There's always these claims of sort of the cliques that control the top journals. And if you're a buddy of someone in the clique, then it's easier to get stuff placed and some mediocre stuff ends up in top journals. But one thing they did say is if you're not a member of the clique and you place a piece in one of the top journals, that's a pretty strong indicia. I don't know that that's true when the kiddies are ed- editing the law reviews. <laughs> it's less, you know, it's less clear to me that, uh, and so Joe, in some sense, I'm agreeing with you and saying, I think the correlation between sort of the originality and quality of research and placement in law is probably even lower in law than it is in economics and quite likely even lower in economics than it is in a field like uh, physics or mathematics where there are some more objective criteria. Um, you know, the other thing that I think about in placement a lot is is um, it's almost generational what the students find of interest. When I, I, I don't know, you guys were younger when I was an editor and then young in my career, I was lucky. I think the editor's sort of had a bias in favor of interdisciplinary stuff. And I, did you guys hear the impression that lately the law, the top law, law reviews in general, but certainly the top law reviews have become a little more inwardly focused. They're more interested in con law, administrative law, even civil procedure, God forbid, they find interesting that those are sort of the things which seem to be more in fashion. Do, do you guys think that's true of in, in uh, on the law journals these days? You know, it's hard to, say without, you know, being scientific with it and kind of going through and looking at, you know, what's been submitted and what's been published. So, so, but, you know, so putting all that aside and, and also like my exposure to like the discourse on Twitter and elsewhere where you can kind of see what people are talking about. um, It does seem like there's been a turn toward the, um, toward the, like toward a doctrinal payoff um, that that Mm -hmm. is even stronger than, you know, when you read literature from the seventies, and, and 80s. Like, I, I always feel like I'm a person who's been a little bit out of time. Mm. Um, uh, you, you do tend to see um, papers which seem to be about, um, uh, well, I mean, about theoretical ideas kind of for their own sake to a greater degree. I mean, there's always been um, a pull toward the normative in law. And part of that is because as a dialectic, you know, it's possible to kind of spin off all kinds of theories that aren't grounded. And so an important form of grounding in law without an objective standard of merit, like in math or science is, well, here's what, here's the, here's what the impact of this will be on cases or for legislation. Mm. Um, So that's always been there, but I do feel like there's been a greater consensus uh, uh, around scholarship, which kind of presumes standards of correctness, legal correctness, rather than um, kind of just operating within a zone of legal uncertainty. In other words, that kind of a, a trinal kind of scholarship, which presumes a right answer thesis to law. And that is so that, you know, once we start talking about cases or administrative regulations, it's like there's just a presumption that there's a, a way to interpret the cases. Um, I, I, I'm not making a lot of sense, uh, but I, I guess it, it's, a, it's a particular kind of doctrinalism that it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way these days. Um, I yeah, don't, no, am I, I, what do you think? Yeah, I think I, yeah. I think, yeah, the the focus is doctrinal, and the, the, 
And in an area like administrative law or con law, um, where you can kind of state simple normative goals, which can be interpreted in so many ways, like federalism or, you know, uh, division of powers, um, people try to situate the article within uh, a certain doctrinal framework and show why uh, their doctrinal case fits better with an existing body of precedent. And they only have to pay lip service to the goals because there's no right answer to the proper amount of federalism or the proper amount uh, of the separation of powers. Uh, And the students today seem to me sort of more interested in that sort of inwardly focused, um, you know, Mm. almost doctrinal, um, a doctrinal fit but more than social implications, I guess, is, is, is one way to put it. Yeah, and I, and I don't have a problem. Like, I, I've read lots of interesting pieces which are in that vein, and I enjoy reading them for the kind of the, the, the framework within which they exist, which may not be one that I share, and that's always interesting to take in on board another framework, mm-hmm. and then to look at the, the rhetoric and also the kind of argumentative style. So there are lots of great pieces being published. It's not necessarily the way that I would approach things, but... You know, this is actually one thing that Law shares with mathematics that that most of that the the kind of the arguments that you make are always of the style. Let's assume A that implies B, right? It's it's always yeah. about like a connection yeah. between things, and it, and so the the kind of um, where I feel like a person out of time or out of place in a way is that there's a lot of writing which assumes A, and like I don't necessarily assume A. <laughs> And in fact, to me, the most interesting scholarship is like, you know, let's look at what let's, makes people choose between A, A prime, A double prime and A triple prime. Like that's yeah. kind of where uh-huh, I'm uh-huh. headed right now. Um, but that doesn't seem to be in fashion. Um, yeah. So I guess the other thing is that there's also be a turn towards sort of structural, uh, not maybe structuralism, but almost formalism, I guess, in some of the con law and civil procedure and administrative law. I don't really read the stuff a lot. I just hear a lot of faculty presentations. This is what our sort of younger faculty, I think, is interested in. So we tend to bring in a lot of people who are doing con law and administrative law and even civil procedure. And there seems to be a certain respect for formalism, which I I, I find puzzling. I don't, you know, they they want to respect (laughs) the form of things without any sort of reference to social uh, goals, uh, uh, desirable ends. Uh, but it, 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 there seems to be an appeal that seems to be part of the legal academic culture right now is that there's a certain attractiveness of, of formal arguments within doctrinal structures, which are sort of divorced from sort of policy. Well, it may, I mean, it may relieve, it, it could be that that stuff is attractive because it relieves a certain anxiety of choice. Um, mm. And so uh, you can you can uh, shield yourself from that anxiety producing choice by, as Christian says, you know, assume a, where a yeah, is a right. very where a is a actually a very long list of propositions, um, yeah. 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 and then mm-hmm. you can work within ordinary uh, law where you're doing the traditional lawyer fit and justification uh, stuff, uh, and that is a craft. I mean, I actually with the stuff I appreciate about. Uh, pieces in this vein, a more doctrinal vein, is that I actually think Christian is fond of saying law isn't hard, and and I think there's a sense in which that's not just true, but deeply true. On the other hand, uh, in a in the Anglo-American sort of common law tradition, uh, lawyering well is a is a craft people can do better and worse. Um, and so, sure. Uh, sure. so I worry if the hey, what about A and A prime? Uh, if if that's a if that's an ang- uh, an effort to re- relieve an anxiety of of 
of craft performance, that would worry me too, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would prefer, I guess I would prefer people not be flying from their anxieties, but rather yeah. running okay. toward them. Mm -hmm. um, not because I do, but because I realize m my own broken nature and therefore can <laughs> express a preference <laughs> er for Eric, point of reference is a non-listener to the show. Well, I should say as a new listener to the show, because I fully expect that you will listen to every episode. <laughs> but um, of course. The, uh, high bar. the meta theme of our show is an exploration of Joe's inner turmoil and anxiety. <laughs> like that, that is, you know, the show is appears to be about one if, thing, but in fact, it's about something far deeper. Can I talk about my inner turmoil too? <laughs> <laughs> By all means. Well, especially to the extent that the that the paper reflects it. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to say well, one damn, thing before I'm we jump into the paper. Not to be in the top one percent, doesn't it show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we before we jump to the paper, though, because Christian keeps uh, he now mentions it virtually every episode oh uh, that the that the show is an extended meditation on my psychosis. <laughs> um, that uh, I will say, connecting to Eric's initial point. Um, about Christian, um, what I will say one of the two or three, I came to the UGA faculty, uh, sort of after having been at Lewis and Clark in, in mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon for a while, um, which I, which was great. And I loved being there. I, I love being here too. One of the top two or three things, and I won't rank order them because I don't need to, but one of the top two or three things that I am most happy about, um, about having moved here is having been exposed to Christian's mind. No, oh, um, and I'm not exaggerating. Stop. I'm not I'm, kidding. I think you know I edit this. I'm just going to cut this out. No, but that's <laughs> fine. Um, but but you know I've I've been at uh, various talks and I've read his papers and we've had these conversations and I just feel like I, I because I'm very much in the in the more traditional fit and justification ordinary law. I'm not the guy who's going to do the. What mm -hmm. about that A and A prime thing? Uh, being around someone who is very much like that, it, I just know makes me better. So um, that's great. Well, that's thank you, Christian. <laughs> just to finish embarrassing you, Christian. Yeah, oh, I've, I've often, yeah, I remember uh, discussions we had at those conferences fondly, and I always thought you'd be a great colleague. So I guess Joe has. Uh, you were right. That. Oh my God. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, we're done. On to Eric's <laughs> paper. So before we talk about your paper, though, you needed. How do you pronounce your family name? Is it Katie's or? Cades? It's Cadis, almost like it was K-A-D-I-S. Yeah. Ah, okay. It's uh, just to give you the etymology of uh, Eastern European Jewish, so of course I'm bald and hairy. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it's Kadasevich was the name, which means son of the Kaddish in Russian, I guess. So oh. actually, yeah, and they got chopped off, and I don't think it was Ellis Island. I think my family came into Baltimore, so that's where Cadis comes from. Cadis, all right. You can tell how professional the show is because it, now we will do the introduction. Our guest today is Eric Cottis <laughs> from William and Mary Law School. Cadis, not Cottis. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah right. What? Joe's right. If uh, uh, Turner, you're right. If it was done in a proper Jewish fashion, it would be Cottis. But at Ellis or at Baltimore, they 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 mangled Kadisevich to Cadis. So yeah. You know, so you had just said that. So this is my neuron was stuck on what you had just said. And as I <laughs> right. was talking, I was thinking about, you know, but this is like, so the, the running joke in our show used to be how often Joe would, would guess wrong about the pronunciation <laughs> of, of family names. Um, and, but recently, like we had a guest on and we were talking to her the whole time. I knew her name. I follow her on Twitter and I, and I just, you, you kind of barfed on the last name for some reason at the end of the show. Oh, of course I leave it in. I leave all my mistakes in because, yeah. you know. Early uh, onset Alzheimer's. Yeah, I'm exactly. sorry, you're younger than me, Christian. It didn't happen to me until about five <laughs> years older than you, I think. But at once I was doing a, a couple of years ago, I was doing a moot court with two of my colleagues, three judges. And there's a colleague who's been in my colleague for 15 years and I forgot her name, <laughs> first and last. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> This yeah. is, 
I, I know the feeling. Like I just, I, I constantly feel like, I, you know, I'm, I'm just getting worse and worse with names over the years. And yeah. I think it's having yeah. so many students and trying to, because oh, yeah. yeah, I know them all. And, and like, I have this constant anxiety that I'm not going to remember one of their names yeah. and, and they're going to take more from that than they should because right. they'll think like, I don't remember them at all, which is I not I used true to be good all. with names and now I'm utterly hopeless. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a decaying skill. It gets harder and harder yeah. every year. I've noticed that, Jim. all right right. let's yeah let's do it let's let's talk about this and fortunately thomas piketty is not here to insist that we pronounce his family name in some other way that's yeah just just so you know uh for future reference it's piketty no it's piketty (laughs) it's the way Uh, kids say spaghetti how do you how how do you say it so i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna follow your lead How, how do you say it eric it's piketty okay is that is that how they would say it in France? Um, I'm told on good authority as I've never met him, but I've been I've talked about him and his work at a number of conferences, and that's how that seems to be the the universal pronunciation. So, okay, so the way I'll pronounce it is Thomas. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, so I have to say, so um, uh, I saw this um, come across the transom. I think it was maybe Larry Solom's blog. Um, is where I, or, or maybe it was on, maybe he tweeted it on Twitter. I, I forget exactly where I, I first saw uh, this paper, but um, it, it, we, we talk about like lots of interesting papers on the show. And, and some of them are of that doctrinal type that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. that are just fascinating in their own right. Others are more conceptual and they're interesting for that. They're all really interesting for different reasons. And Joe does a great job of kind of corralling and looking and, um, you know, we don't always get the guests that we, uh, people, people sometimes don't want to come on the show or, or they don't respond or whatever, but, um, really? but, but oh yeah, 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 huh. yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not everybody's like game for coming on a podcast. Like it seems, you know, can seem oh, weird. And, but anyway, but we, we've had a, a ton of like really interesting guests. Um, you know, many of the papers, including some that I write, like it's, it's, it's rare, though, that you would get a paper like this that I think is about one of the maybe three most important issues of our times. <laughs> um, and that is also doctrinally rich, historically rich, and interdisciplinary at the same time. So for me... No, no, I'm, I'm going to blush and tell you to <laughs> shut up. Right? <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's just a mind-blowing paper, partly because, you know, I had just read um, uh, Thomas's book, <laughs> Thomas Piketty's book. Um, uh, I think it was like last year sometime when I finally got around to it. And, and like everybody, like many people who have read it was just had my mind totally changed by it. Um, I mean, not, not that I was ever like for, you know, wealth inequality, but it just my, my, <laughs> my, my outlook on, on like economics, my outlook on, on my own life growing up and how it in fact was warped by this really weird period and how mm. our kind of culture of work and savings was, was warped by a very unusual, pe- like all that like was really landed with me. Um, but when I think about our, our major challenges these days, um, I'm thinking mm. climate change, I'm thinking yeah. uh, racism thought of broadly, mm-hmm. you know, including, yeah. you know, kind of interpersonal mm-hmm. and group in group biases. So that includes racism and uh, ethnic strife and I think misogyny. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then third is income, uh, wealth inequality. And uh, these are like major challenges. And one of the, you know, great frustrations of our current time is that we seem to be making no progress on any of these. Um, but of course, that can be illusory. Sometimes, you know, progress doesn't seem to be happening until it happens all at once. So I think you're focusing on one of the three, you know, huge, colossal issues here. And 
and and are managing to talk about like the rule against perpetuities <laughs> in this paper, which I think is just amazing. So uh, I don't know how we want to get started, but that, that's what kind of brought drew me into wanting to talk mm-hmm. to you about this, just because of the importance of the issue and also how accessible you made it to to people um, who work in law, legal scholars and lawyers, um, and kind of brought the issue, which seems so huge, what, you know, global wealth inequality. How you kind of brought it alive within our legal system, within something that we can conceive of regulating to do something about. And I, I thought that was awesome. I don't know, Joe, did you want to set it is, up is as well? Is this paper part of a larger group of papers? Yeah. You occasionally say we, where I'm expecting to see <laughs> I. Well, you know, it's, I, I want to be in the top 1%, so I'm practicing the royal we. <laughs> um, You're like the Pope. Um, <laughs> uh, L'etat, c'est moi. <laughs> um, that's, how, that's how Trump thinks. There's Trump. Trump's Louis XIV. The estate, the state is me. Mm. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, no, it is part of a large... I'm writing a book. Actually, I've been writing... I've been thinking about it since... The, the sort of the seminal article on inequality was an article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics by uh, Piketty and uh, a, a future Nobel Prize winner, Emmanuel Saez, who's at Berkeley. Uh, and they kind of charted the top 1% since 1913. And I read that and that blew me away. And so I've been thinking about the, writing a book about law and inequality since basically 2003. And then certain life events happened. And I was vice dean for a while and then actually started the book, not till I was done being vice dean and that was in 2012 <laughs> it's still been seven years i'm hoping to finish up the summer but yeah this is in effect a chapter and a half out of a book on all the different domains mm. in which the law has fostered inequality instead of combated inequality so yeah it is part of that uh, sort of a larger project um so yeah so, so and this question i think the best place to start might be um, something that doesn't sound like it's about law at all, but I think is could be kind of the 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 crux for me of of thinking about what what this project is. Um, so, uh, what's bad about savings? Yeah. Oh, you yeah, want to start is, there? Fascinating, hmm? fascinating that you want to start there. There, there are like yeah, five different places you could start here, Eric. But I think I yeah. think that's very a uh, very insightful place to start because yeah. that is I think at the center of, of this article. And it sort of ties into, you know, the, the Great Recession, you know, was not good for much. Um, it was a lot of heartache to a lot of people. But one thing it was good for was that a bunch of um, very smart but um, detached thinking about macroeconomics has sort of taken over the economics profession, the very laissez-faire, uh, Panglossian view, markets are the best of all possible worlds, yada, yada, yada. And I think there's a growing um, uh, um, uh, acceptance in, 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 uh, in the world of economics that the Keynesians had a lot right, that the Keynesians came out of the Great Recession with much better stories about what happened. They forecast what would happen better. And so it all flows out of the, what's wrong with savings all flows out of stuff that if, if either of you took you know, macroeconomics as an undergrad in the 90s or something, you probably stumbled across. And, and, and the notion is, so the simpler notion is that in, in a time, a recession is almost defined as everyone wants to save at the same time. It's a flight to cash. There's a financial panic. And when everyone tries to save at the same time, everyone's income goes down because no business is getting done because everyone's stuffing money under mattresses or buying treasury bills, which is the, is the same thing. And, and the recession gets worse. And so you need the sort of 
pump priming fiscal policy that the Keynesians have always advocated. So that's, I think, maybe the easier piece for people to understand. If you have any exposure to macroeconomics, you probably sort of were exposed to that notion. It was put in disavowal by the Chicago School in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, started to make a bit of a comeback. And, and I think with the Great Recession, I think the Chicago folks in macro are in full retreat. Um, the Keynesians really have done much better at sort of describing the world. The second piece is, is very is sort of older in the literature and uh, it's less intuitive. Most people have the notion, yeah, but outside of this business cycle sort of considerations, isn't more saving always better, right? Um, and sometimes it's motivated by fa fables, you know, that I said in the book, but a lot of times it's motivated, you know, if we have more capital, we'll be more productive and, and we'll grow better. But there's an old result which has stood unchallenged and I think is accepted by all growth economists um, uh, today, which is there is such a thing as too much savings in the long run, even if there weren't business cycles, because capital, uh, what, whatever you choose to invest in, be it machines, research, um, you know, more fertilizer for land, it has diminishing returns, and you don't want to save too much. If you save 40% of income, you're going to be buying the 142nd machine per worker, and uh, she or he's pretty busy with the first 141, and the 142nd machine's not going to help much. And so that's the idea that there's a golden level of savings beyond which savings actually reduces consumption forever. So one of the challenges in the paper was trying to reduce all of that to sort of, you know, accessible text. But savings is bad in recessions. And if savings gets too high, it's actually bad in the long run as well, even outside of any sort of concern about uh, periodic downturns. So there's a long-winded answer to a short question. Can I try to explore that just with some examples? Sure. And you tell me if I've got these right. I'm just trying to make this mm -hmm. kind of intuitive for people. So suppose we're um, suppose the government wants to spend money, um, maybe to stimulate the economy, maybe for any reason. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. So they buy, mm -hmm. you know, they spend a dollar. Government spends a dollar to buy concrete from a concrete manufacturer for roads or something mm -hmm. like that. Concrete manufacturer uses that dollar to buy the materials for concrete. Um, mm -hmm. And so some of that dollar goes to other suppliers yep. in the economy and then makes a little bit of profit and then spends that profit on things like a loaf of yep. bread or something like that. And then the person who receives the profit from the concrete in the form of bread, uh, um, you know, well, the, 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 the baker who, who bakes a loaf of <laughs> bread receives that profit. And that person then takes some of that um, – profit, mm -hmm. which is a portion of that dollar, to pay the suppliers for the loaf of bread, and then also makes a profit. And so th the upshot is that that dollar keeps being spent repeatedly through the economy. And if no one saves anything, it just kind of that the, the um, it, it, it kind of it increases in fraction because it keeps getting split up because of profits yeah, yeah. And, and, and expenses. So it, but it keeps percolating through the economy. It's repeatedly well, spent. Did you ever take macro? No. Christian or not? Well, so you're, the, so this is uh, – it's your turn to blush again. I mean you could be giving a macro lecture. What you're, <laughs> des what you're describing is called the multiplier. Effect yes, yeah. Of consumption, yeah. And, and it is true that the mathematical result is if the, no one ever saved anything, the multiplier effect of government spending would be infinite. Um, everyone knows that's not true, that there are some limits, that there's always sort of leakage from the bucket, uh, mm -hmm. be it savings or from taxes or anything. But that captures the insight that when there is slack in the economy, um, 
when there's a lot of unused resources, the government spending will have a relatively powerful multiplier effect. When we're near full employment, uh, all it does is crowd out other activity. And so hence, no need for the government to, to sort of uh, try to get that multiplier operating in the economy right now. We seem to be at roughly full employment. But of course, in 2008, 2009, um, thank goodness, uh, the, the president and Congress passed a, a stimulus bill. It was only about one third of the size it needed to be, which was unfortunate. No, oh, you said but, a third. I always thought a half, but that's yeah, interesting. I, yeah. yeah, there are various numbers flowing out there, but whatever it was, I think, yeah. again, among the Keynes, uh, you know, again, the Chicago folks, Folks, you know, thought we we're going to have runaway inflation. We're, we're still waiting <laughs> for the runaway inflation that these. And by the way, none of these people, none of these monetarists and the Chicago folks have have a sort of updated their forecast. It's still coming. <laughs> wow. you know, so they've been wrong for 10 years. They have not updated. So do, do what you will with that as far as you know, using the scientific method and letting evidence guide your beliefs. I mean, one thing I will say, my favorite trope now is uh, the data is democratic. Yeah. The Republicans but, were predict a lot of shit, and it's all theory. But in that, um, in that the simple, numbers, the numbers always come in for the lefties now. So in that simple uh, story of the of the dollar kind of mm-hmm. becoming fractionalized and and yeah. repeatedly spent, um, the role of savings there for people kind of you know trying to get up to speed is that if I don't spend it, then the, then the money will get stuck in savings. If I use those savings to invest, like in other businesses, then yes, then the, then the money keeps going on. Absolutely. But if I but if I keep it under my mattress or invest, quote unquote, invest in a vehicle mm-hmm. which is essentially cash, then that's so it's like mm-hmm. sticking under the mattress. Then then that dollar kind of that portion of that dollar just kind of stops. Well, it's your third chance to blush. So you're you're continuing. Yeah. You, you you pick the wrong profession. You you're a natural macro. <laughs> but you're what you're describing is yeah. In Keynes, you know, you read the, the general theory of uh, employment. Fun. His fundamental insight was what breaks down in a recession is the connection pipe between savings and investment. Uh, in normal times, the money flows from people's savings to investment, and and it and it uh, it, it it sort of of creates a demand, whether it's consumed or saved, is out there working for us. But in a recession, people don't want to buy stock in GM or they don't even want to lend GM money in a bond. Uh, they want it in money in the mattress or uh, a treasury uh, bill. And savings doesn't feed into investment. And that's the shortfall in aggregate demand that, that causes recession. So yeah, you've nutshelled very nicely. Uh, exactly the role of savings in excessive savings during um, during recessions, right? Black demand, yeah. In a recession, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but th- then the less intuitive one, just to kind of round out the example kind mm-hmm. of stories, right? Is one like you have to imagine kind of a stylized example, I think, to make this easy. Just imagine that there's kind of one form of production and everybody has the machine already that does that form of production and there's no new innovation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start making some money, but you say, you know what, like I, I want to save up a nest egg here. And instead of going and buying the products of all of these machines, I'm, I'm going to invest in additional machines because I see that machines are productive and I'm going to make some, you know, uh, earn, earn some money from investment. But buying mm-hmm. one more machine when everybody already has all the machines that they can use to produce doesn't actually return anything. And so buying one more machine, one more machine just kind of reduces everybody's returns. And so yeah. Uh- Absolutely. It's, it's, it's in some sense wasted investment, unwise investment. Yeah, that's so that's the sort of the long term phenomenon. Yeah. And so in the long term, you like you, you reduce savings, right? <laughs> you ret- um, by, yeah, you, by increasing by saving. 
Yeah. By increasing savings, you can by increasing the savings rate, you can reduce both consumption and saving forever. If you think of it as sort of an equilibrium path where you keep saving beyond this this golden rule rate, mm-hmm. yeah, you are just accomplishing literally less than nothing by investing so bad, so unwisely. So it seems like, um, as counterintuitive as it may feel, uh, because because there's all sorts of ways we want to teach people that savings is good, uh, because it sometimes is good, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, but we probably point. overlearn that lesson. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, savings, although it can be good in some ways, it can also be bad in some ways, both in a short, uh, in a short window problem mm-hmm. or in a long window problem. Uh, so, it's like, so it's like water. It's counterintuitive to say that water mm-hmm. is poisonous, but there are circumstances under which if you consumed more <laughs> water, you would die, right? Very um, nice. Hyponatremia. Yeah, right. um, so so you, we have to understand, once we understand that, it makes sense to say, oh, okay, one of our one of our main tools for tackling problems that develop at a large scale, you know, a problem of social behavior in the aggregate that is harmful, not helpful, is law. So there's a thing for law to tackle here when it comes to, gosh, if we saw if we saw a way in which a set of social relations was going to lead to massive oversavings, mm-hmm. that sounds like a thing we need to address. Well, because if, if it you, has problem, it generates problems. If you can demonstrate that the that the market won't correct it, because a, a common response, and you deal with this in the paper, Eric, so maybe you want to say something about it, is like, if like massive, if if oversaving decreases overall savings in the long run, right? Because it mm-hmm. reduces the value of those savings. Then then why you know why why is this not a self correcting problem? You know because and, yeah. And let me just because uh, I uh, Christian did a very good thing. Um, in pointing out that w- one tool that law has at its disposal is to say, okay, l- as long as we make sure that there's a well-functioning market here, the issue can get addressed. If there isn't a well-functioning market, maybe we need to try some other things. I'm thinking of law- markets in my, in my conception of the way I was using that word, right? Markets don't exist without law. So the, saying we, law is a tool we can use to deal with these problems includes the fact that we might ver- simply verify the way in which a market is well-functioning and and make sure that that continues to be the case. Um, I wasn't trying to oppose law and markets. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think you're both right in the sense that, and I think, well, we all, everyone who's thought about it sort of knows this. Well, some people on the right don't, but uh, the libertarians might miss the, miss the boat on this. But, um, but there's no one pure, unregulated... Um, golden standard market, right? Markets are always defined in a context of property rights, uh, contract rights, and there's no, you know, there we make efficiency arguments for and against, but it's complicated, the sort of property regime you want to have, the sort of contract regime, the sort of tort regime you want to have, the sort of antitrust regime you want to have. And so the, the market is not some ideal. It's, it's, comp- it's complex and contested. Hopefully it's contested over, you know, policies that drive uh, human flourishing. But in, in, this, in the context of this particular paper, a hugely important question is, you know, how much dead hand control do you want to give people when they die over their wealth? Because the way we're headed, the abolition of the RAP and the, the end of the estate tax, is we're giving people who amass huge fortunes power forever, right? These are perpetuities. Uh, and this is power to keep money uh, within one set of beneficiaries forever. That is one way to define a market. I, I mean, uh, sort of 
sort of touching back to our discussion of savings and tying it back into the, the direction that you guys are uh, pointing me. Um, absent the possibility of dynastic trusts, um, I'm not worried about oversaving. I don't, I, given historical savings data uh, in the United States and elsewhere, I don't think we would ever have to worry about getting past the golden rate. Um, is, amount that, of savings. is that because, because people differ in their taste for savings as individuals? Yeah, I, I just, it, it, it's not that many people want to set up dynasties, right? And so most people spend the money, you know, and, and if they don't, their kids do. And, and we're so, quite far from it, like even right now, right? So I think what you say, the average savings rate is a, is it roughly about equal to the historic return on capital? It's like that 5% number, right? Yeah, there's no question. This paper is pointing to the future, not looking at the present. Yeah, the current savings rate is nowhere near the golden rate. Which is on about the 13 to 14%, Eric, is that right? Yeah, I think in that range, yeah, that's okay. the best estimate. It's the sum of the population growth rate and the depreciation rate. Um but yeah, we're not close to it now. But if if Piketty, if I <laughs> see, see, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's, 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 if I, I did mispronounce it at a conference, it was very embarrassing. You think I would learn from that lesson? <laughs> uh, yeah. But if Piketty's right, um, this is where we're headed. So if you if Piketty's right, and wealth is going to become very concentrated in general, and then you enable those people. To, at least in the United States, to set up dynastic trusts. This really could be a problem in 30 years or 40 years or 20 years or 50 years. I don't know the, the, the you know, I haven't calculated or tried to calculate any sort of rates at which this could happen. But wealth is becoming very concentrated. Uh, you know, there are some evidence that there's a biological urge to, you know, propagate one's own uh, bloodlines. I mean, we have a long history of that from at least feudal times, if not further back in history. There is an industry now, I don't talk about it much in the paper, but there is a growing little industry of, of trust lawyers, especially centered in Nevada for some reason, <laughs> like many, you know, sort of slightly shady things. It's a, um, but there, there's a growing coterie of lawyers who actively advertise. You can do a Google search, a dynastic trust, you know, benefit you and your heirs forever. So mm. to the extent that the people, you know, Larry Page and Serge Brin at Google and Bill Gates, Bill Gates seems much more charitable, so it doesn't look like it's going to happen there. But look, if uh, if a critical mass of very wealthy people try to set these things up, you know, they control most of the wealth in society. That's going to have a measurable impact on the savings rate. So yeah, it 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 could happen. Um, we we I, I don't think it's a pipe dream to think that in given the concentration of wealth going on and the biological urge to benefit one's progeny. Uh, this could happen, and we are legally enabling it. Whereas, you know, 50 years, this was unthinkable. Our legal structure, and you know, in the 1950s and 60s, we had a very market-oriented economy, but it was sort of no one would have questioned the rule against perpetuities. Of course, you don't want that much dead hand control. It, was, it wasn't a debate, you know, at all. And so, it's it's an interesting question we can explore if you guys want. You know, what what where did this come from? Who 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 in the heck? Yeah. decided the rule against perpetuities was a bad idea. Well, I, I want to start with just kind of the mechanics uh, uh, mm. of the problem and how we and how it doesn't seem obvious or how for a long time during our lifetimes, it hasn't seemed obvious to a lot of people. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the centerpiece, of course, of, of Piketty's book, uh, Piketty's, sorry, <laughs> uh, the, the centerpiece of Thomas's book is that um, uh, the, the long run and historic return on capital you know, mm-hmm. uh, my savings and investments 
um, outstrips um, the growth of the economy. So, yep. and this translates basically, people can think of this as, um, you know, passive investments that I make uh, are going to have greater returns than kind of my expected kind of raises if I started working. So if I start working and I just have income from labor, I can expect over time with the growth of the economy, some raises and that that will go up over time. And my kids might make a little bit more than I did because the economy's you know, more productive and returning more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but that, that growth, that the rate of growth in, in returns on labor will be outstripped by the rate of growth on returns to just, you know, the stuff I do nothing to do, just, you know, yep. wealth mm-hmm. that I either inherit or accumulate and, and invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so historically, um, the return on capital is about 5%. And for almost all of human history, the return on, um, on, on labor or the natural the growth, growth rate of the economy yeah. is like 1%, um, mm-hmm. or a little bit above 1%. Um, yeah, one but, to two. Okay. Yeah, but our, um, something very unusual happened, um, after, um, the world wars, then starting in the period between the world wars and then after the world wars. And that's a lot of, uh, capital, um, started to return less, um, either because it was destroyed or because it was heavily taxed. And I think in his book, he, he, um, uh, pushes back on the idea that what happened is a lot of capital was destroyed and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, yep, it, that, that wasn't necessarily the major driver, but whatever the major drivers were, um, that the, the, the kind of real return on capital, I don't know how economists talk about it was a little bit less, but also the growth rates of the economies, um, the major economies in the world were, were much higher. And so now we've been in this period of what, like three to 5%, growth rates. Um, and some countries are, you know, shoot up quite high, especially when they're developing very, very quickly. Right. Um, sort of catch up growth. Yeah. When they, yeah, they sort of get plugged into the world economy and then uh, start to get a good division of labor going. You know, and like so Korea, when the baby boomers China. were like returning from the war and starting businesses and jobs, um, basically the, the growth rate of the economy was almost equivalent to, if not greater than, if, yeah. uh, th- than the return on capital. And so if you're thinking like, what do I do? Do I, do I invest in like my education and go out and try to do the best job I can or start a business? Or do I try to marry into a wealthy family? Um, it was totally <laughs> rational at that point to invest all of your energy into like trying to start a business, trying to grow mm-hmm. things, trying to improve, yep. trying to get uh, raises and promotions because um, that's but but that's um, where the growth was. Yes, but what uh, his book points out is that that is an anomaly in human history, and there's mm-hmm. no reason to expect that that is the new normal. And there's every reason to expect that the growth rate of the economy will return to that one to two percent range, and that the returns on capital will remain around five percent. And if that's so, um, then well, will uh, will wealth inequality? continue to accelerate. And and we have to tell another story about how it is that we're able to transmit through generations that advantage, that capital advantage. Um, and I, I don't know if we want to get in. We, we should get into that mechanic, I think, next. Do I have that that part of the story right, though? Oh, yeah. No, that that is – yeah, absolutely. He's saying about the glorious 30 years the French call post-World War II. I mean, for the France and Europe, a lot of that growth is catch-up growth. I mean, a lot of you know France was you know sort of pillaged and destroyed – a lot of Europe. Uh, and so there was a, just a fast growth rate for the economy. There was uh, many productive things to do to be sort of uh, fixed from the damage the war did. But the, that was sort of a temporary thing. And now we've returned to the normal where wealth has a greater return than the economy in general. Yeah, R greater than G is his famous uh, inequality. And I think this is like, you know, politically and culturally difficult to deal with because a lot of our stories about getting ahead in the world and opportunities were forged in 
you know, uh, baby boomer parents raising us mm-hmm. or, or the following generation, but we're in an economic reality where none of that really works, uh, where, you know, um, you're much better off being rich already. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and in fact, you know, uh, as Huge you point out, one of the key things that he mentioned and that, and that you helpfully highlight in, in, in this article is I think the average incomes from inheritances, you know, this is like just truly income, like, you know, how much do you receive each year in income from various sources? And on average, Americans receive 25% from inheritance. And yeah. you might be looking around saying, wait a minute, <laughs> like, I, don't, like I, I know what my income is and, and it is, I don't receive on average a quarter of it in inheritance. And that and just, probably never will. I never, no, absolutely never will. Right. Um, and you think, what if my income were like a quarter higher? Well, that's what it's kind of like to be, uh, to, to, to be in one of these um, dynastic families and, and, you know. Well, but, yeah, and not even I wouldn't think of the quarter. What happened? What's happening there is an averaging of very unequal. Outcome. Absolutely, I mean, most people inherit nothing, and a few people inherit unbelievable amounts. So it's a, it's a sort of area where you and I basically are described by the median, <laughs> yeah. which is zero. But because it's such a skewed distribution, the mean is incredibly high. Absolutely, twenty five percent means there's you know the top point zero one percent are enjoying extraordinary inheritances, and and everyone else essentially none. And, and people just need to focus on that. I think it's like. A quarter yeah. of all income is transmitted by inheritance each year. It is. Yeah, I mean, you, it's you, a you staggering know, you, figure. Yeah, I, I had, you know, you, you, I'm glad you were, I hadn't really kind of framed it in that way or thought about it that way, but you're right. That is a nice statistic to shock people with. Yeah, yeah. So is the, I guess if we're thinking about, back to my, my sort of focus on, on savings and the ways in which savings can become problematic, Right, mm-hmm. um, both in the short term and the long term. So, is the is it seems to me that w- one reason a person might expect um, that this isn't terrible, the things you guys were just talking about, right? It's it's not it's not so terrible because as 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 much as uh, the novels of Jane Austen teach us that. R is greater than G, and they do mm-hmm. teach us that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they also teach us that. Look, this is the story I, about marrying into a rich family, and yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. but, and, and, but no, but but the other thing that's you can count on every uh, third or fourth kid uh, being a complete idiot, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and and therefore dissipating. Well, Are you sure not three out of four? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so the the you know the problem is, is to use Christian's phrase before about self-correction, right? That, that some of this gets addressed by the fact that uh, at least under certain circumstances, and I think those are the ones that are important as I read your paper, right? That some of this gets corrected because, you know, some people are great savers, but some people are terrible savers. They maybe blow most, money like there's maybe no... Maybe most like, people. Maybe most, right? Yeah. Uh, they blow money like nobody's business. And, and that and that actually is the the beneficial version of... You know, um, in the sort of the Keynesian sense, that you that what what keeps an economy going is motion. Um, yeah, and- I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it, I guess what's sort of you know, Piketty's um, perspective is a very long term one. It's you know, generational, multiple generations, and the lesson of human history is yeah, you don't have to worry a ton about dynastic wealth as long as you're careful with your inheritance laws and don't give people too much dead hand control because, yeah, maybe one, two, or even three generations will be parsimonious and build the family state, but you can count on it by the fourth that things will get dissipated, shaken out. Um, things will end up in the hands of people who use it better. And so, yeah, I, I write about the the importance of, of sort of dissipation in that dynamic. 
Um, and you know, it is it is sort of puzzling that uh, the, the heroes of the story are a bunch <laughs> of judges in medieval England who who basically set up the rule against perpetuities to prevent uh, family dynastic wealth. My guess is they were fairly privileged dudes, you know, but they, in some sense, they saw the dangers that we've become blind to, at least almost every state legislature has become blind to, uh, and have enabled people now to do something they have not been able to do under Anglo-American jurisprudence since, I don't know, 1200 or something, almost a thousand years. They've enabled uh, one person to prevent the helpful dynamic of dissipation of wealth and enabled one person to lock up fortunes, arbitrarily large fortunes forever, perpetuities. And the second piece, which we haven't got to, um, uh, we also have uh, a very powerful estate, less powerful than it used to be, but are still relatively potent estate tax. Uh, but that, as we all know, Susan Collins of Maine, the one senator was between us and the abolition of of the estate tax uh, in in 2017. Dissipation by profligate heirs is one um, is one mechanism. I just want to kind of uh, make it try to make it as super clear as we can what the mechanism is of these of of the building up of dynasties and, and the danger. And so so the upshot is that if the return on capital is greater than the growth of the economy, then so long as you are able to live off of less than the difference between those two. So if I've got a pile of capital. And what I'm going to live off of is the return on that capital. So long as what I'm living off of um, is is less than um, uh, the, the the difference than the return on on capital yep, and, exactly. and the growth rate of the economy, that there's enough room yep. in there for me to kind of take money out and still be ahead mm-hmm. of the growth rate of the economy, then yep. I, in a real sense, I'm not dissipating the estate, right? And in yep. fact, I'm I'm yep. building it. And, and so you, if you can save enough. In other words, right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if if you're willing to in uh, if you're willing to have savings at a high enough rate, the return on the capital will support you and allow you not to impair. The, mm-hmm. So so the and maybe in other even words, build. In other words, the, yep. the the savings stuff is a mechanism by which the dynasticism is projected right. from the past into the future. Yeah, right? or the exactly. way in which, as one uh, author put it, the uh, the way that the past eats the future. Piketty has that great phrase. It's a wonderful phrase. Yeah, um, but that's it. Seems to me that's the fear of dynast. That's the thing in dynasticism we we would need to be worried about, right? Which is the ability of someone with an appetite for not just dynasticism but thrift savings. Someone mm-hmm. who's willing to live on less now to save more for later, that that is what, if it gets projected in an uncontrolled sense into the future, that's the well, danger. So there are, two, there are two mechanisms, and one of them is the profligate dissipation mechanism that you talked about, Joe. There are kind of two mechanisms that you might think would make the in, creating an enduring dynasty impossible. And one is that um, people tend to have more than just one child. Uh, and so the more children you have, then mm-hmm. at the end of, the, of your life, the estate is going to be split up into multiple hands. And and eventually, because of the growth of population, it will be split up into so many hands that those people will no longer be able to live off the spread between R and G. And then mm-hmm. the estate starts to get eaten up, right? right. Because you start yeah. to dissipate it. So Which that turns that is, out not, not to be true. Right. Well, so there <laughs> if two, the difference if R minus G is big enough right. and savings is big enough, you solve that. You can solve that problem. Well, but but you one of have, the, yeah, what, larger and larger number of children giving bigger and bigger difference between R and G. Yeah. But one of the early attempts to try to kind of keep the family strong by um, by the kind of the 
um, people who wanted to originate a dynasty, was to say, how about instead of um, uh, allowing this estate to be chopped up, I, I put something in my will that says that this estate will always pass to exactly one family member. Right. Primogenitor. Yeah. It, it mm-hmm. could it could be just the oldest male or what have you. And this is the fee tail idea, right, that I've yeah. somehow I've created this method of inheritance, which will ensure that the estate will always be unified. Now, that mm-hmm. doesn't control the profligate spending. You know, that person could be an unwise investor. Well, the fee tail, but... the fee tail did the fee tail did control profligate spending because by law, uh, by the, the design of the fee tail, um, you if if one. You couldn't sell it because you only had a life estate right. each successive heir, and you couldn't even mortgage it because the mortgage was not good against the successors, and so it really did prevent anyone from spending the capital of the family estate. So, it, yeah, by design, it did prevent dissipation entirely. I mean, you but, could, but, by projecting the dissipation yes, risk on creditors. Right. Yeah, in right. Essence, right. You, you have be, to be careful with if right. you're dealing with one of those people. You got to be very careful. You don't yeah, give them a lot of credit. Right. Would need to know that they were dealing with someone with the fee tail because you would not be able to seize the estate forever. You could seize it until that person died, yeah. and then the heir would come in and kick you out. You right. Know? So this is the real problem. I mean, you could, you know, heirs could use the, it unwisely and not build up as much capital based on that initial capital as other people who are smarter about it. So you know, there are ways even with the land that you could be unwise mm-hmm. and and not kind of keep pace with other rentiers. Um, but. Um, uh, but but this is a problem. And so one of the early strikes against uh, this kind of attempted dynasticism was the abolishment of the fee tail, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can't um, – you kind of can't create this ongoing unitary lineage to carry on the family name. But even that may not be enough if you're able to create in a will um, – certain controls in the future. Um, maybe you try to restrain alienation. Court struck mm-hmm. back against that, right? Maybe yep. you try to specify um, who will take for four or more generations, um, thereby yep. kind of increasing the chance that this lasts a very long time. And that's where the rule against perpetuities comes in, which it basically ensures or tr- attempts to ensure that basically, and we don't need to get into it because this is the, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to teach the rule against perpetuities in this podcast. I barely try to teach it in my classroom. Um, uh, but it basically ensures that like grandkids will have free use of land and uh, yeah. ultimately grandkids will have free use of land, which means that you are increasing the chance of a profligate um, heir uh, uh, in the future dissipating the estate um, through consumption. And over time, you know, the, the chances of having a profligate heir dissipate the estate approaches unity. I mean, yeah. you know, with enough time, someone is going to dissipate the estate. Yeah. And so you don't, you know, the, an attempt to build a perpetual dynasty is doomed. And that's the rule against perpetuities is meant to prevent, right, this kind of perpetual control in the creation of a perpetual dynasty. All right. That, mm-hmm. All right. So that's I think those are the two main mechanisms that you that, that you that you um, discuss in the paper and the two main legal responses that you discuss in the paper, at least as they exist mm-hmm. in, before we get to your proposal. Do I have that story right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The rule against perpetuities prevented all that sort of monkey business. All, any creative idea might one might one might have to try to propagate family wealth forever. Just chopped it all off at the knees after you know some complicatedly defined but def, you know semi definite period of time. All your control would come to an end. Somebody would own fee simple and could do whatever they wanted. Yeah. And so now coming to the United States during this very weird period where, where um, the the historic and longstanding pattern of R being greater than G by a certain amount um, becomes uh, the, the difference between the, between those things becomes uh, minimal, if not in, inverse. We we have a certain kind of cultural attitude about work and about capital, which is maybe not sustainable. 
And at this time, you start to get a push to, well, I worked really hard. Um, and why should I not be able to transmit that wealth? And there's no social harm in doing so because, you know, you're always going to get ahead by working hard rather than by marrying into a good family. And so maybe we should cut the the so-called death tax or estate tax. Like, why should I have to pay something on my death? And then this old rule against perpetuities, like, it was hard enough to learn in law school. Why do we have to have it at all? (laughs) Like, let's just junk Mm -hmm. this thing um, Mm -hmm. uh, and and, um, let me put my money in a trust that can last for a thousand years. And actually, this is not a, a, a terrible idea because um, th- the whole problem that the rule of perpetuities was designed to prevent, some people say, was like the that they kind of locked up property. Um, uh, yeah, it you made know, it inalienable. Yeah. Because yeah. As, as, a, as a testator, I could say, you know, you can't you you can't um, you can't sell Blackacre. You can't uh, break it right. up in certain ways. You can only do these things with it. But if and what those, you're doing is a trust. Right. And yep. mm-hmm. if it's a yep. trust and the trustee has yep. the full authority to alienate and, and right. all the yep. beneficiaries have is kind of a right to value, yeah. then mm-hmm. all of those assets are being put to their highest and best use. And so we don't have yep. this problem. Right. Yeah. The and trust the trust solves the worry that about inalienability. So that's yeah, the the inalienability justification for the rule doesn't really hold water. Yeah, because you can just use a trust with full powers of alienation. Yeah. And so the American push is Get rid of the rule against perpetuities. Let people have trust that will last a thousand years or forever. Get rid of the estate tax. No problem um, because all these assets are being put to their highest and best use and more savings is better. And all of this runs headlong into what um, Piketty says is the economic reality of the situation in the long run, which will be Mm -hmm. a devastating um, increasing of income inequality, oversaving, um, and uh, an impoverishment of 99% of the population. At least a relative impoverishment, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, I'm it, trying to be overly dramatic. It's funny, even the <laughs> even the rhetoric of, of setting up the perpetual trust, it, it has a savings, you can put a sort of a savings flourish on it that sounds good but, but is actually terribly destructive, right? You could say, look, I'm setting up this trust in such a way that it's actually going to spin off very little cash for yep. the people right. who are going to benefit uh, under the trust. So it's not like I'm encouraging indolence. They're going to have to work. Um, they're not going to get that much money because it's going to save most of what it has. And it's the saving most of what it has that turns out to be the hellish mechanism that winds up impoverishing rather than benefiting. Yeah, you're pointing out, look, our social, there's social tropes, which are always pro-saving. And, and that is sort of something we need, we need to combat uh, because, as, as we talked about earlier, excessive savings uh, at some point, at some times, becomes uh, a, real, a real economic problem. But so, but if these, so if the trusts... Are, are now stepping in to, um, to, from the perspective of the, of the person who wants to set up a perpetual dynasty, if the trust is solving the problem of the profligate heir and lower birth rates are solving the problem of, um, of division of these states, mm-hmm. and so that there are no longer these uh, breaks that we kind of had tried to put in place against the building of dynastic wealth, um, then we have a, a potential problem if if uh, Piketty is correct about uh, the degree to which R will be greater than G in the long run. Um, and and here's where you kind of step in and say, let's look at these trends in American law and let's do something different. But you don't advocate the full-throated return of the rule against perpetuities, which you criticize as kind of a blunt instrument and not necessarily tuned to the specific problem. So, do, so now an hour into the podcast, <laughs> do, you, do you want to talk about like what you think should happen? Yeah, and so uh, it's a sort of uh, broader theme in the book, um, which is that that inequality produces all sorts of externalities. That uh, it imposes uh, all sorts of costs. And so, just to give a super mini 
review, it turns out that inequality in, in um, income actually has powerful implications for people's health, even after you correct for the level of income and uh, education, uh, that stratification uh, produces um, real negative health effects for those lower in the strata, even if they have relatively high income. There's some famous studies of, of civil servants in Britain, which uh, show this uh, to be shockingly a powerful effect and have been duplicated in other countries. So for that, in my book, I advocate some sort of attacks um, on the asymmetric um, uh, delivery of health care to sort of try to tilt uh, um, the delivery of health care in favor of those who are hurt by stratification. So throughout the book, I, I advocate a series of what I call inequality taxes. Right? Inequality produces externalities, and the classic way to deal with an externality is to tax it so that uh, people producing it sort of internalize the costs that they're imposing on others. And so I propose a series of tax tar taxes targeted at each of the externalities that we've talked about today, the uh, paradox of thrift during recessions. These, if people want to set up dynastic trusts, they are going to make recessions harder to cure and more severe. And if they really want to do it, they should bear that cost. So there's a tax for that during recessions. Uh, over the long run, if dynastic trusts cause the savings rate to go over the golden rule rate, so we're just accumulating too much capital past any sort of reasonable level of productivity, we can tax that. So the, the general idea is that inequality um, of wealth that is allowed to take the form of dynastic wealth by the abolition of the rule against perpetuities and the abolition of, of uh, any sort of estate tax uh, has these negative consequences for the whole economy. And uh, so the perfect solution from an economic point of view to an externality is a tax calibrated uh, to impose, to enforce the internalization of those costs uh, on those imposing costs on society. One thing I uh, was worried about in reading your proposals was um, pr precisely that that calibration point, uh, that uh, the nimbleness you would need to, with which you'd need to act, um, especially with respect to the, the anti-recession um, mechanism, but even with respect to the other mechanism, um, it seemed to me that that's... Um, the political economy problem there is is uh, looks very hard to solve, right? That we're yeah. not we're not that taxing authorities are not that nimble, um, so it's going to be very hard to set up. Uh, if you were really trying to do this in in only that way, uh, we'd be very hard to to pull it off, wouldn't it? I I mean, Joe, you raise a, a very good point in that um, way to reframe your question in a more pointed way is you know how the hell do you calculate the tax rates? <laughs> And, and I guess some, some issues of timing. I actually think the issues of timing might be uh, fairly solvable. Um, but, yeah, and, and my reply is, yeah, how do we get any tax rate right, externality tax or otherwise? Who knows what the, what the I mean, the optimal income tax rate for efficiency purpose, for fairness services. So I, I'm not saying that we'll be able to nail this or that we'll get it within 5%. I, I do think if it leans into the problem in a measurable way, it'll have a positive effect, uh, that's a very significant positive effect. We still, we may undertax and then we'll still get deeper and uh, longer recessions than we should. We uh, may overtax. Um, and not get enough savings in the long run, and we could have a more productive economy. So I don't want to pretend that there's any sort of formula in this article to make 
an impossible calculation. So I, I, I'm, I'm one of these people, I'm very comfortable with rough and ready justice. And sure. You, you do the best you can with the facts you got. And so I guess a tax might be a little too low, might be a little too high, but a, you know, a reasonably chosen tax is probably, I'm fairly confident would be better than just letting this happen, letting this sort of run rampant without any sort of push in the other direction when we have good reason to think that oversaving is going to be a problem, less saving, even if we don't get enough, or even pushing savings too far down is probably better than the status quo that we might be heading towards. Would a second best or third best be, and this this could be completely uh, nuts and stupid and just say that because I'm not, I'm not a tax <laughs> policy person or, or a tax person of any kind, um, but it seems to me, I mean, what would be, what what if we simply set uh, what do we simply say um uh, because there's this over savings danger that mm-hmm. uh, we simply every year um we we have a running we have a basically a running list of the trusts that uh are at least x big uh, mm-hmm. and every year at random we pick <laughs> a few of them and we just dismember them right so we we we, we, we <laughs> We say the people who are currently benefiting from them, of course, are going to continue oh to get. You sort of have a life state, a life estate protection for the current beneficiaries, right? The purge, the, the living beneficiaries, um, and we do that because of a you know we we sort of recognize there's a confiscation problem, right? So you don't confiscate as to those currently alive, mm-hmm. at least not entirely, um, but as to the rest, you simply seize it. And uh, that's a, an expropriation thing, that which is a mechanism that can be used. Um, and then you put all that stuff into the FISC, and uh, and you do it every year or every other year, whatever. I mean, uh, rather than calculating a rate, just identify the things that are the potential source of danger and choose one of them at random, which is fair, right? Every them, every, all of them have an equal chance of being exposed to this eradication risk. Um, <laughs> and, and then just do it that way. What's wrong with that? Yeah, and you know, so you talked about your, you know, the show being about sometimes talking about your sort of inner struggles and stuff. But I, I think we're, I think I see a kindred spirit here, and that inside both of us, I think there's a wild-eyed radical, you know, <laughs> who would love to go into a bank trust department and just you know, with a mace and start smashing everything. And so I, I, I think you know my id shares uh, your sort of intuition that maybe this is, you know, the, the way to go at this is with a jackhammer. Um, I guess, um, but, but Eric, some, wouldn't you? Might be, yeah, I'm sorry. It, let me just interject and see if, because uh, I'm also ignorant of this. But like, wouldn't the response to that be a market in um, trust dissolution insurance? Yeah, it, which it, would be a tax. You, you always want to be nervous about systems that impose, which sort of insert more volatility into the world than there already exists. So should the legal system do that? You know, sometimes mm. people try to justify that, and I think, oh, this may be behind your. Um, behind your, your 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 thought here is that you, you put the fear of god into everyone and no one will do it and so you know maybe you can justify sort of legal regimes which take a world with a certain amount of uncertainty and make it more uncertain um my 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 it's my it is is attracted to your notion but my super ego mm. says i'm not convinced that that's sort of inserting more volatility in the world i think christian is on to a good point which is yeah, you're just going to create an insurance industry where people will sort of pool that risk and, and that whole insurance industry is not serving any real socially productive uh, a purpose. I mean, 
Joe, maybe for our inner radicals, we should look to Piketty. He basically says solve the problem overall by just having an annual tax on capital and, and, and that basically more than overtakes the difference between R and G. And, and so if you want, if you want, if we want to tap into our inner radical, uh, Joe, I think we probably want to go with Piketty's regime as opposed to your, your initial regime. And his is, that is the way that it solves all of our problems. So I think it is theoretically the best solution. Uh, he in the book tries to say, well, everyone thinks this is unrealistic, but people thought the income tax was unrealistic when it was first proposed. And maybe he's right. Maybe after 20 or 30 years of concentrated wealth, people will be on board. I guess I, I have I sort of have my doubts. It would have to be international. Um, uh, and I just I, I don't see that happening. There seems to be sort of more uh, centrif uh, force pulling us apart today. Britain's pulling out of the EU. Uh, yeah. uh, we're all becoming more separated. So so, yeah. It, if you really want to attack the problem root and branch, which Joe, I think is what you were thinking of just basically dismembering trusts sort of on a random basis to put the fear of God into people not to do this. I think the better solution is uh, Piketty's uh, global tax on capital. I just think that is politically um, uh, totally infeasible. Whereas, you know, my proposal, obviously, look, is it going to happen? Almost surely not. But it seems more uh, realistic to have some sort of targeted taxes on things within the United States than to to, to hope for a global tax on capital. And but, surely you could combine. But I still love I love your inner inner radical. <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> oh, I, I have to say, if that centripetal force keeps uh, occurring, is it centrifugal or centripetal? I always get those I, two mixed up. I, it's I being the, the one which things are being flung apart, whichever one that is. Yeah. Um, if if that keeps happening, like, if, if, and that's the reason we can't solve this problem, then we're gonna all, you know, we have other problems. We have other problems, including yeah. like climate yeah. change yeah. And, and nuclear war, which is gonna happen. So yeah. you know, we yeah. we either Those solve this problem problems. or we all die. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of like incremental advances, like some modest taxes of some kind, even if they're not perfect. After all, you know, the the gas tax is not like perfectly calibrated to solve all of the. Um, True. Externalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hesitating to say externalities, you know, uh, because of coasts. And so it, there's a hidden thing in there about identifying harms. But um, uh, but nonetheless, yes, I mean, there's certain, you know, costs which you're putting on others. But but then there are other things you can do around the edges, like um, dramatically reduce the length of copyright, um, abolish yeah. pa abolish patents. I mean, uh, these are sources of, of capital now that are extremely important. Um, and you do enough of stuff like that around the edges and you start to make progress on the problem, maybe. Um, well, here, I can, I can hawk my book here because, yeah, I, I, I talk about a number of these things. Yeah. I mean, look, the, to me, the the story here and, and, and what I think what Piketty and I think most of us find most worrisome about the concentration of wealth is as this famous Brandeis quote that I quote and I think everyone else quotes nowadays, which is, and he said during the Gilded Age, look, you can have democracy or you can have um, great concentrations of wealth. Take your pick, but you can't have both at some point. If enough wealth is concentrated in few enough hands, those people are going to call the shots. And that's what's happening. I mean, there's no question that's what the Reagan revolution started and it's accelerated. And Christian, you're absolutely right. The Digital Millennial Copyright Act is great for rich people, not so much for everyone else. If you want to go to something more prosaic from, you know, uh, tort law, the your rights and your persona, you know, have expanded tremendously. You know, that benefits about 17 celebrities, you know, every 20 years whose persona like Elvis is worth something for, mm -hmm. you know, generations. 
there is powerful dynamics working right now across a number of areas of law, most of it pretty quietly, not with much notice, that are pushing the law in a number of domains in favor of those who have accumulated wealth. So I, I you know, you know, Chris, put in an early order for my book. <laughs> do you, <laughs> You're going to love a, every chapter. Do you have a title chapter, yet? Uh, the New Feudalism, yes, The New Feudalism. When's it coming out? Uh, well, that's depends on how much work I get done. Between, I'm not teaching this semester and I have the summer okay. and I'm hoping to finish it by, by August and then, then look for a publisher. So, um, it might be in, uh, on Amazon, you know, 2020 might be, uh, you know, uh, a forecast, but, but that's, you, 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 I mean, you know, you, you're thinking exactly like I think, which is this problem is metastasized. It's popping up in copyright law. It's popping up in inheritance law. It's popping up in uh, the law of gated communities and real property law. It's popping up in the way we deal with healthcare. Uh, it's just popping up all over the place. And the law is being increasingly, seemingly controlled uh, by the 1% in favor of the 1%. Um, and Brandeis has told us, well, you know, at some sense, at some point, you're not going to have democracy anymore. You'll have chosen concentrated wealth instead. And if you have that concentrated wealth, um, if you're one of those people who has it, then you have the incentive and the ability to not just push on one lever, but to look in law, to look at law and push on all the levers at the same time. Yeah, I mean, we only know the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we know what the Koch brothers. I don't know if you guys, if this is going on at your law school, the Koch brothers are, have infiltrated our law school. The Koch brothers have given money for this uh, the creation of a center for law and markets. Hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, the veneer is it's an academic enterprise and they bring in speakers who are academic. And but come on, the Koch brothers are not interested in you know, elevating legal discourse. The Koch brothers are interested in a certain political ideology which favors the billions that they control. So the money, the tentacles are long and far reaching and numerous. I was hoping your story was going to be that they had physically infiltrated your law school. And like, <laughs> well, that may have happened. Like one of the other cokes is like lurking around the corner. There you know. used to be a conspiracy theorist, you know, in this day and age. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, we are all conspiracy theorists now. So the, the on the political economy point and, the, and that Brandeis uh, so that mm. we face a basic choice. I mean, it seems to me this is the this is the um, large and and ineradicable blind spot of libertarianism that uh, the failure to appreciate the the fact that aggregations of private power can be every bit as threatening as aggregations of public power, and and it is the insight that motivates um, uh, antitrust, or as Christian likes to say, antitrust. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that and Brandeis has a, a sort of a, a a hero in that in that uh, that conceptual uh, or history of ideas backdrop for antitrust is is very significant. Um, now, before all those people email us and say Brandeis didn't really say that. First of all, he meant it. He said stuff like it. He may even have said that. And if you want to know more, read Eric's paper because he has a footnote all about the uncertainty <laughs> about that quote, right? right so right. Uh, yeah. uh, we've got it covered. Of, I wasted two days of my life on that footnote. Is, is that, it, looked like, it looked like you may have. It actually. really did. <laughs> um, but it, it's so important to, to, for, to think about um, and, and what the project overall in terms of these dynastic trusts and it's sort of like concentrations of power, right? And they can exist in public forms, in private forms, 
what is it that's bad about them? What is it that they can accomplish, right? So you could say, oh, you know, your concentration of power is my economy of scale, right? So it is complicated. They, they can achieve good things and as well as uh, generate uh, bad outcomes. And so you just got to think about um, wh where they are and what they're doing and how to combat them. Uh, and I think that makes more people better off than it makes worse off. You know, but. someone really ought to write a paper about how there are many markets in society of very different kinds and they all have different purposes and how power in one market can be used as power in another market. I wish I, somebody would write that paper. I, I do too. And it's great because I know someone is. <laughs> and I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> and there are no mirrors in this room. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, well, Eric, this has been amazing. Well, thank you guys for having me. I, this, this is totally fun. I mean, I, and I, I very much appreciate it. You guys clearly read the paper very carefully, uh, really helped hone in on sort of the key points in the paper. Um, and so I hope a lot of folks listen to this. I hope we um, uh, plug into some fellow wild-eyed radicals. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, all, we, have a battle. we have a battle on our hands for American democracy. So we're, 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 we're talking about important facets of this. So and you've got to come back when the book comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. You, you book the date. I mean, you guys, you guys have been fantastic. So this has been uh, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you for uh, for inviting me. Thanks, Eric. I, I'll just say that, like, um, uh, you know, a lot of times when we talk about a paper, we spend some time getting the main ideas of the paper out there. And then the conversation usually goes kind of other places and we figure out mm -hmm. the locations. And this is one that you, you kind of cover so many different areas that, that I think what we've tried to do the best we can here is to outline the major points of your paper. We really haven't gone outside it that much, if at all. Um, but I would commend the paper to people to read. I think it's eminently readable um, for anybody who has a legal background, and even if you don't. Um, Quite so. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's a longish paper, but not too long. And I think you'll just learn a ton. Like if, you, if you're one of those people who's heard about the Piketty book and you're like, oh boy, I'd really like to, you know, but it seems like a long book and, you know, whatever. Um, I think you give a great summary of his major ideas and their kind of implications specifically for America and American law. So I well, thank you for all your kind at. words. You've been, yeah. you've been very kind. I, I really appreciate it. All right. Should I hit stop? Yeah. All right. Sure. And then the best things will happen. Yeah. See, the <laughs> listeners, like, listeners, we're about to have a great conversation. We, <laughs> we, Save the good stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are about to be trashed. Other people are going to be, you know, anointed <laughs> as, as heroes. Like, you, But you're never going to find out. No, no. We'll probably hang up here. But, um, but thanks a lot, Eric. Okay. Well, thank you guys again.